This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate all the most important conversations in society from politics to pop culture and beyond. So, Let's get to it, guys. I don't know how else to say this, but Catherine Boyle is here, venture capitalist, genius, and someone who truly understands that the future of religion in Silicon Valley, our souls and our minds are actually deeply intertwined. So that's going to be amazing. But to set the stage, I want to talk about the world of wizardry. Okay, so what do I mean by that? Charles Mann, one of my favorite writers about science and the history of science, proposed that there are two ways to think about humanity's place in the world. And each way is represented by a certain type of person. There's the prophet and there's the wizard. Prophets see the world as finite, fragile, and so the best humans can do is not be greedy, pare down our lifestyles to fit our environment. But wizards look at the world and see vast potential and humans as blessed with the capacity to see challenges and turn them into opportunities for innovation and for growth. So prophets see a world of limitations. Wizards see a world of possibilities. And I think we can locate the origins of wizardry in human civilization in the Hebrew Bible. So consider, the Israelites are slaves in Egypt for over 200 years. And then finally, God sends Moses to rescue them and lead them out. And in short order, they head to Mount Sinai, where they receive the Ten Commandments. We talked about that last week. And now, all of a sudden, they're not refugees looking back on the same trauma, but a people looking forward to a shared purpose. But then, a strange thing happens. Moses starts teaching them all about this new covenant that they just entered into. And all of a sudden he says, don't oppress the stranger because you were slaves in Egypt and you know what that's like. And then a chapter later, he repeats the same exact line. And then again in Leviticus and again in Deuteronomy over and over, Moses repeats this same refrain because you were slaves in Egypt, do X, Y, and Z. Isn't this crazy? Like why keep reminding this beaten down people of this horrible experience that they've had? Why not just move on get a fresh start? And the answer is we're seeing here a wizard moment, not in the scientific sphere, but in the moral sphere. There's this terrible trauma that one way or another was going to leave an indelible mark on the Israelites. So you could just accept that and move on. You could pare down your moral ambition and live within those limits. But instead, what the Bible does is say, yes, it's going to leave a mark. So let's make that mark a positive one and turn this into an opportunity for moral innovation and growth. And so it's in this moment that the Bible introduces one of the most revolutionary concepts of all time into human thought, and that is love the stranger. Not love thy neighbor. Loving someone just like you is important, but it's relatively easy. But loving the stranger, the other who is not in my image, but is in God's image, is the moral principle without which human liberty could never have existed, let alone flourished. And it was born out of an insistence on approaching the fact of Egyptian slavery, not like prophets, but like moral wizards turning an emotional constraint into moral and civilizational growth. And look, nowadays, it's become common, I think, to think of Silicon Valley and traditional religion as the new Athens versus Jerusalem. And there might be some truth to this, at least phenotypically. But in many ways, I actually think this attitude represents just like a failure of imagination. Because I truly think the two forces for wizardry, at least in American life, which are going to be our salvation, are tech and religion. They're the two forces saying we have this insane, bananas, crazy, ambitious vision for turning the world that is into the world that ought to be. And so to talk about this, I invited on straight up one of the most brilliant people who will ever appear on this podcast, partner at the VC firm General Catalyst, and someone who's done a great deal of thinking about tech, tradition, religion, the one, the only, Catherine Boyle. Catherine, thank you so much for being here. 
Thank you so much for having me, Ari. I'm so excited for this conversation. Oh my God, let's jump right into it. I am even more excited. So I know thinking about the U.S. in terms of like East Coast versus West Coast is a tale as old as time, or, you know, like a tale as old as Tupac and Biggie, but I think it really does help to think of the U.S. right now as having two capitals. There's an East Coast capital in D.C. and a West Coast capital in Silicon Valley or in the Bay Area. I know that's simplifying, but bear with me. So the East Coast capital is run by folks who are much older. The average age in the House and the Senate is like late 50s, early 60s. It's much more risque verse and religious symbolism is much more overt in its public imagery. And the West Coast capital is run by folks who are much younger, late 30s, early 40s, but also some notable success stories younger than that, much more likely to take risks and where, at least in the public mind, much more likely to be hospitable to people who think religion is silly or even bad. So if traditional communities or traditional religious communities, which is a very substantial portion of America and certainly the majority and given demographic trends likely to be that way for some time. So if traditional communities or traditional religious communities had to go long on the East Coast or the West Coast, D.C. or the Bay Area, I think most people just assume as a matter of course that the answer is go long on the East Coast Power Center. But I actually suspect that a good counterintuitive case could and should be made for going long on the West Coast Power Center. So could you make that case? Yeah, could no, absolutely. I love the the framing you have of wizards and prophets. And at some point we'll, we'll come back to that because I do think the the wizards, even though they're, they're framed as not being open to religion on the West Coast, I think what people miss is that there's so much spirituality and kind of religion in Silicon Valley, even in the language that we use, that, it, that it's important to understand, I think, the, the parallels between religion and sort of building a company. So one of the things before I moved to Silicon Valley, I was so struck by this I was an outsider, I was a journalist, and I was looking in on what does Silicon Valley actually mean and, and what are the parallels between religion? And the first thing that was really notable to me was that the thing that the media in particular was so upset about happening in Silicon Valley was Facebook and Google were seen as sort of these behemoths, these sort of, you know, uh, if you're going to use the David and Goliath, you know, parable, like they were the Goliaths in the room. And their original sin was actually the original sin of man, which is wanting to have all knowledge at our fingertips which I thought was always really amazing. Like maybe there's something primal about why people are so upset about these, these big companies because maybe what we're trying to do is sort of have a, have a fight with God in many ways. That was sort of my coming in as an outsider. I was like, maybe this is the problem with Silicon Valley. But then I met so many early stage founders uh, who really think of themselves as starting on their own creation journey. You know, they're building something from scratch. They're having to kind of create a tribe or a posse of people who will believe in something that's considered to be, in many cases, kind of unorthodox or crazy, or people look at them almost as these people who aren't following the traditional path. And so to go back to your sort of fixed mindset or part of the prophet versus the wizard, it's really hard to be a wizard in today's society. And I think that most of our prophets are actually in sort of these old power centers where they want things to stay the way they are. They don't necessarily you know, want to see this sort of vibrancy or kind of new innovation or kind of new creation. And so I do think there's a lot of parallels between the wizards in Silicon Valley who are sort of starting off on this creation story. They're the, you know, the first and second books of the Bible. They're the, you know, starting with Genesis and then going into Exodus. You know, they really are starting this journey from scratch. And that sort of necessitates that they'll find their own tribe and that they'll have their own sort of ethos that I think is important to building something new. So I love that point about the major tech companies as kind of replaying that story of the sin of Adam and Eve in Genesis 2 and 3. I think that's brilliant. And I want to push further on that. So like I mentioned earlier, how Silicon Valley and traditional religion are often set up as like the new Athens and Jerusalem. But if you think about what distinguished 
Greek wisdom and Hebrew wisdom. So the most obvious thing is that Greek wisdom is system and Hebrew wisdom is story, right? Athens is about investigating the nature of things and Jerusalem is about articulating a purpose for things. Now, if you think about what the big tech companies in our era are confronting, you know, in an earlier stage, it's basically that all knowledge is available via the internet, but it's like without form and void to borrow a phrase, you know, from Genesis. And what they do is make it possible to actually make meaning out of all of this knowledge. So it becomes all searchable. And then more advanced search algorithms allow companies to actually tell stories with all this knowledge. So aren't some of these big companies like much more on the Jerusalem end of the spectrum than Athens? And as you're saying before, and if that's the case, wouldn't you think that these stories would or should resonate with founders, like these big stories? I actually do think that we're more on the side of Jerusalem. And, and part of that is if you're if you're taking sort of the reason versus revelation dichotomy that I think uh, we were talking earlier about Leo Strauss, you know, I, I do think that that sort of interpretation of humanity is is very much present in Silicon Valley, where in order to get things done, you have to have systems. I'm an investor. And so when I want to make an investment, I have to talk to my partnership in terms of these are the logic trees. This is the financial analysis that I've done. But every decision we make is much more based on revelation, especially at the earliest of stages. Oh, my God. Can you say more about that? That's fascinating. What does that mean? So, you know, there's a concept that I think a lot of investors talk about, especially, you know, a lot of famous investors in in Silicon Valley. They talk about this idea of secrets, that there are secrets in the world that are sort of given to these extraordinary founders. We don't know where they come from. They're sort of divined into these people who are more extraordinary than I will ever be. And, you know, if you look at sort of the consummate founder, Elon Musk, he has so many secrets that he just figured out and kind of gave to the world. And people are amazed. You know, he has an amazing story in terms of he's going to save humanity by taking us to Mars. And as absurd as that sounds to so many people, it looks like it's actually going to happen. And that's a secret that was sort of given to him. And we don't know where it came from, but that's very different than sort of the logic of, you know, to use the phrase of the prophets, like the, the logic of we have to stay the path. We have to be very East Coast and think that this is the way that the future will, will play out. And so I think that there's these extraordinary founders who are these wizards and they have these secrets and they're, they're revealed to them. They're not something that you can take from a logic tree or any kind of financial analysis. And as investors, we have to look at the balance of reason and revelation. So I can't go into you know, a partnership and say, you know, I have this great idea, but I have no data, nothing to support it. And I think we should put a lot of money into a company. But at the same time, a lot of our decision-making is based on these revelations or these feelings that there are extraordinary founders who know things that we don't. And when you hear about any great investment that a venture capitalist has made in Silicon Valley, they always talk about how there's no pattern. It makes no sense at the time. They just had this feeling or this, this gut impulse that they were seeing a secret in real time. And so I do think that even though there's a lot of talk about how we're, you know, we're very scientific, I would say if you compare sort of religious communities on the East Coast to the West Coast, there, there aren't as many vibrant religious communities, or at least it's not as paramount in Silicon Valley. But the story of Silicon Valley and the story of creation is so much linked to the story of the Hebrew Bible in many ways that I think people are kind of living this sort of religious story as they build companies. So what you're saying now actually makes me think about the way in which both kind of like the East Coast capital, D.C., and the West Coast capital, Silicon Valley, engage in sort of like 
parallel or they could engage in kind of like parallel processes of of myth making because that is what happens in I mean it doesn't start in DC right it's like New York and Philadelphia but sort of the political capital of the United States you know is on the one hand this like brand new experiment in human affairs but it's very conscious that it's this brand new experiment in human affairs and so it ties everything that it's doing and some of this is because of you know the Protestant context in which America arises but still it ties its own really kind of grand and ambitious vision to these huge larger than life stories and part of what allows the experiment the american political experiment to succeed is that you have this populace that on the one hand is enthralled by this vision but is also afraid of kind of the tumultuous change that it brings and what helps kind of acclimate the larger population to the grand ambitious experiment is knowing that it's rooted in this wider sense of wisdom that people trust. Now, what I see happening kind of on the West Coast is you have all the makings of that, right? So you have all the makings of an ability. You have these crazy ambitious founders. You have like the Jeffersons and the Hamiltons and the Washingtons and the Sam Adamses. You have all of these kind of major visionaries like you just described. And you have all the ingredients there for them to kind of tie what they're doing to a larger narrative, kind of place themselves in a larger context. And I suspect that if they did do that, it would make kind of the West Coast capital seem so much less threatening to the traditional masses of America. And yet there seems to be, at least in the popular imagination, it's kind of like resistance on the part of the greatest luminaries of Silicon Valley to do that kind of like explicit Uh, to place yourself in a tradition. I think there's much more of this desire to kind of be the beginning of your own myth, right? And why is that? Wouldn't it make much more sense for major Silicon Valley founders to place themselves in a larger tradition just for the sake of making sure their experiments succeed and get like wide public buy-in? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, no, no. And I love that you made the comparison between the founders of the country and the founders on the West Coast, because I've always wondered, for a long time, we called founders entrepreneurs. And now we call them founders. Oh, that's a great point. And I do think that we are looking at Silicon Valley founders in a way that's different now because we see their impact and the types of things that they're building as not just businesses, but as actually changing not only American culture, but global culture. So I do think there was a shift from the word entrepreneur to founder, and it was very deliberate. And it does kind of place us in this broader story of continuing the great American experiment. But, but, I, but I do think you have a, a very good point that Silicon Valley has always been, I'd say until very recently, terrible at telling its story. That's just something that most founders have to be coached on. They're very good at telling a small group of people, like they can convince someone to join the tribe when they're, you know, 10 people and they're trying to build an epic company. But the broader story, getting it out in the media, getting it out to the broader country and to the world, we haven't been very good at that. And so I think that you're seeing kind of that change now, this realization that founders need to be able to to bring not only just their know their tribe along, but the entire country and the entire world along on time because the the missions they're working on is so important, but that they can't rely on other people to tell their story. So there is this movement, Elon Musk is actually somewhat spearheading it, which is tell your own story. Start building your own narratives and putting them out there directly on Twitter, on on Facebook, on on channels that are available to you. Because if you rely on other people to get the story, they're not going to get the story right. And I do think that some of these stories are so complex, whether it's going to Mars or self-driving cars or building uh, technology that's going to impact people in terms of civic services. Like these are very complex issues. And so I do think it's it's the job of the founder to be able to tell that story. And, and, and I think we're getting better at it, uh, at least as an ecosystem. 
that raises another question, which is one thing that you've you've written publicly about. You had an amazing piece in the Washington Post on Silicon Valley and faith and kind of, you know, VC funded faith initiatives. So if you use demographics as proxy for who actually believes in the human future, right? The kind of population groups that are growing that are like putting their biological money where their mouth is and saying, yeah, yes, I believe in this world and I want to bring more people into it. So it's religious groups that are really doing that. And in particular, outside the United States, but but even in the U.S. as well. I mean, I myself come from a, a relatively fecund community. Like I'm a, you know, <laughs> religious Orthodox Jew. So you would think that Silicon Valley, to the extent that they are very much, at least so they say, and I believe them, invested in the the future of humanity and are optimistic about kind of the the human future, you'd think that kind of religious community and traditional religion, the kind of people who are actually demonstrating that sort of optimism with their real life choices, with their revealed preferences, would be like natural partners for Silicon Valley. So I feel like, A, the conventional wisdom is that they're not sort of natural partners, at least at present. So is that conventional wisdom correct? And whether it is or it's not, what would that kind of partnership look like moving forward? I think for for a while it was the conventional wisdom probably was correct. Silicon Valley was was very focused on the theory of the founder spending hundreds of hours a week working, not really focusing on family. You know the duality of where do we find dynamism? You can find dynamism in a company, or you can find dynamism in building a family or, or supporting your communities. And so I do think that's existed for a long time. I actually think that that's going to change, and I'm very excited about the future and what Silicon Valley Tech in particular is bringing to this conversation of how do we build community and how do we build family. Recently, I uh, I had my first child with my husband. Uh, he's he's eight weeks old now. Mazel tov. Yeah, no, it's it's <laughs> wonderful. And I, I had been thinking a lot about why my experience of having a child was very different than, say, a few years ago, the, the women I know who had children in Silicon Valley before COVID. And the thing that really struck me was that Zoom has perhaps, and I'm hoping it stays this way, perhaps saved the American family. Oh, and you had a wonderful piece about this on Medium, Can Zoom Save the American Family? Everyone should read it. It's mind-blowingly great. You know, I very much believe that this is probably the greatest gift that Silicon Valley can give to community is allowing people to use Zoom as the primary mode of work. And one of the things that has existed in the U.S. throughout our history is that we've always made family about work and not vice versa. We've never said we're going to put family first, whether it's industrialization, whether it was post-war, people going into offices. Our family structure has always been you know, secondary to how we, how we format work. And what I think is so interesting about COVID is that people have been working from home. It's been difficult if you've had many kids, as I know you have, Ari, but, but <laughs> people have been working from home and they've been able to spend more time with their families. And I think Silicon Valley is, is definitely pioneering this method of, of remote work culture where we have these tools where you can work from home, you can have communications and conversations like we're having you know, across the country and, and it, it doesn't feel any different. And I think that's actually going to be the, the, the real spark of American dynamism is when people feel like they can have their dream jobs where they can work from home or they can have a job and work from home and also support a family and be there with their families. And so that's what I'm hoping Silicon Valley in the next 10, 20 years really gives to the American dream and that that allows for, as you're saying, these two groups that haven't always seen eye to eye or haven't been able to work together to really come together and say, this, this new technology is actually fostering American family. I, I love that point. And I'm actually wondering, aside from, from someone like yourself, if you're thinking about the you know, I, I I don't even know what to call this coalition. It just, it seems to me counterintuitively like such a natural coalition, sort of the two groups 
Silicon Valley and traditional religion that both most credibly claim and actually demonstrate with their actions that they believe in the human future and want to invest in it. It's such a natural partnership. I feel like, much like many natural partnerships that have yet to form, you're going to need bridge figures, right? So I look to someone like you as obviously someone who can do that. But if you're thinking kind of in your, in the fantasy roster, right, like fantasy football or feel like, you know, if you're putting together kind of the, you know, the Ocean's Eleven heist for, you know, the dream team for who's going to actually build these bridges, like who are some figures Maybe or maybe even just one figure who you look at as like, this is someone who I think embodies the potential of this coalition. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I work with an incredible founder. Uh, he's the founder of Andural Industries named Trey Stevens. And he is a, a very devout Christian. And one of the things that I've found to be very important about the conversations that he's had in Silicon Valley is just that he talks about it. A few years ago, if you were an investor in Silicon Valley and you talked about faith and how it impacted your life, you would be sort of looked at funny. But because he's the founder of a very successful company and is also an investor, and I, I think he embodies sort of the spirit of you can be very focused on science, you can be very focused on deep tech, which his company is in deep tech, and you can also talk about religion and its impact on your life. And I do think that that's becoming more and more common. One of the things that I've always found weird about how professionals treat religion is that it's a huge important part of our lives and yet we don't talk about it in the workplace for a lot of reasons. I think it's not something that people bring up. I think we're sort of told, don't ever bring up your religion. It's not something to talk about at a dinner party. It's not something to talk about, you know, over coffee with colleagues. But when you start talking about it, you realize that there are so many people who believe in a traditional religion and who, or who've practiced or maybe are curious about it and they just need the opening. Uh, the other thing I'm really excited about is there's a whole slew of new companies in the religion space. So they're tech-enabled businesses that help people practice religion, uh, whether that's Catholicism, Christianity, Judaism, Islam. And what's amazing about these companies is that if you're looking at them as an investor, as, as I have, what happens, at least in the workplace, is that you start talking about religion with your colleagues. And I have been extremely fortunate to have conversations with colleagues who I've worked with for years who I had no idea practiced a religion because we never talked about it. But because of these new tech products, uh, we're having those conversations. So I, I do think that there's a, a roster of people that, that are excited to kind of come forward and tell their own stories. And, and I'm also hopeful that once there's more tech products that are focused on religion, and some of them you know, include companies like Pray.com and, and Hollow and, and a number of meditation apps that are focused on helping people practice their faith. Once you have more conversations with your colleagues and that sort of thing, that there will be these communities that come forward and say that there's a lot more in common between technologists and religious, as you said. That is so fascinating. I wonder, I honestly hadn't thought about this until just now, but I wonder to what extent some of this kind of like conventional wisdom antipathy between Silicon Valley and traditional religion is an artifact of Silicon Valley, not just being an idea, but being a physical place in America. So, you know, I, I think, for example, of my sister who works for, you know, a major tech company in Israel, and she's, you know, a deeply religious woman, does UX, UI. And one of the things she always talks about is how, like, not weird it is in Israel, just as an example. This may be true elsewhere. Everyone just talks about everything from an American perspective, like, inappropriate ways. So it's like, who are you voting for? What, <laughs> what religion are you? Like, how religious are you? Like, how many kids do you have? You know, like, when are you having your next kid? Like, that kind of thing. Um, and it's religious, secular, What everybody is talking that way. And, you know, if I reflect then back in the American context, I think some of what you're describing as 
a limiting factor, but one that can totally be overcome, is kind of the view from nowhere in Silicon Valley, which is, it's one thing for Silicon Valley to say, hey, like religion is a growth area, just like driverless cars or like transportation or something else is a growth area. But it's another thing entirely for you to say something so profound as you just did, which is, hey, there's this founder who's like a deeply devout Christian who has this particular perspective that he or she brings to their work in making the world better and transforming it for the better. How do we work towards a world in which it becomes normal in the Bay Area to not have that view from nowhere? It's like actually bring your deepest beliefs in that respect into your work. It's a very good question because I think that part of the reluctance right now of people to say, you know, bring your whole self to work is that that means totally different things to different people. And I, you know, during the election in particular, people were very reluctant to talk about politics, to talk about the things that were going on. And, and, you know, there were two sides and two camps, and that was a heated controversy in Silicon Valley as well, is should you bring your whole self to work? What are the topics that you should bring? And if you're bringing all of this to work, does it take away from the actual missions of companies? And one of the things that some founders have said is that actually we should just focus solely on our mission. And our mission isn't a variety of, of social ills that we need to fix, or it isn't a certain religion. It's it's literally, you know, to solve one thing, whether it's a business, you know, that's focused on B2B software, or if it's a business focused on cryptocurrencies, whatever it be, that's our mission. Um, and so I think it's hard But I also think that there needs to be a lot more space for people, particularly that are starting companies, to talk about the things that have impacted them in their life. And people have historically just kind of left out the religion. You know, like I don't, as an investor, often ask people, unless they're focused on religion, you know, how is your faith journey? Right, right. But at the same time, that's probably one of the more important questions to ask someone if they are practicing the faith, because it it probably impacts how they view everything about company building and everything about how they're going to build their company. And so I think it's going to take sort of a founder-driven movement for people to be comfortable talking about, here are the things that have impacted me. And if one of them is religion, that's that's great. And we should talk about it. And, And Silicon Valley should be very open to those conversations. But I do think that will take some time. Amen. That is so insightful. I suppose if I could leave with one last question, it would be this. One of the things that that we kind of talked about before this conversation when we were just kind of, you know, chatting or email is Silicon Valley embodying not sort of like a religious ethos, but more of like a spiritual ethos, right? There are a lot of different ways to kind of split that difference. But if I think of the one that feels most intuitive to me coming from a deeply observant background, The one thing that I not recoil from, but when I look at Silicon Valley and I don't see this, I feel like it's odd, which is I don't see a lot of ritual in Silicon Valley. And ritual is something that now, by the way, to be fair, there are religious communities that I don't see a lot of ritual in. And I also feel that that's something missing there as well. But one thing that I I love about ritual is the way it kind of structures. It kind of keeps you mission focused, even when, you know, when you're being diverted in so many different ways. And I wonder, am I totally wrong to feel that way about Silicon Valley, that ritual is missing? Like, is there ritual that I'm just not seeing or is there not ritual? And actually, that's a that's a virtue of Silicon Valley. And it's just something that traditional religious groups in Silicon Valley are going to have to kind of learn from each other in that respect. So it's so funny you bring that up because I actually do think uh, people in Silicon Valley are craving ritual. 
it's so important. And, and, and to your point, like, why is it not here? I think it's just sort of under the radar. So some of the rituals that I, I think are, are somewhat humorous because people don't necessarily see them as religious uh, is the fasting movement that has completely taken hold of Silicon Valley. Uh, you know, ancient religions have fasted for a long time and seen the benefits of it. And it's only recently that <laughs> Silicon Valley has told us that, you know, intermittent fasting is a healthy thing that we should all be doing. And when you meet with various founders, at least pre-COVID, it was very common to go to lunch with people and not eat <laughs> because, because everyone's fasting. I'm so, uh, or, I'm so glad that Silicon Valley has finally discovered Yom Kippur. That's amazing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, and, and, or to have a dinner party where someone shows up and says, I'm not eating because of the health benefits. And so I do think that there are these emergent rituals. Obviously, meditation is one of them. Some of the most prominent founders are, are focused on meditation as a, as a way to maintain mental health, but they don't necessarily talk of it as, as something that's helping them spiritually. And I think there is a movement towards sort of transcendental meditation, but it's talked about in a way that's sort of devoid of religion. Even the biggest meditation companies say, we don't want to include religion necessarily in, in the platform because it might take away from, from what we're trying to build or it's not in, in line with our ethos. And I think that leaves room for a lot of other companies and a lot of other people to come forward and say, actually, these practices are ancient in their nature and they've been part of religion for a long time. And there's a whole swath of people that could benefit from religious meditation, religious fasting and religious ritual, as you're saying. So I do think that ritual is very common in Silicon Valley. They just don't call it that. Interesting. Like a good friend of mine actually pointed out to me that on Clubhouse, if you kind of go into the faith section, like the top category in faith is atheism. And I was like, that seems that seems very stereotypically Silicon Valley. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe there's something to that. So where do folks follow you on the uh, on the interwebs, so to speak? I'm pretty active on Twitter, Amazing. trying to be at least. Uh, so I'm KTM Boyle on Twitter. And then you mentioned Clubhouse as well. I'm at Catherine on Clubhouse, and I've been loving that platform as well as a place oh, to have like real conversations with people that you otherwise wouldn't meet. So I'm, I'm there often as well. Everybody, follow Catherine. She's brilliant, incisive. She's uh, really at the cutting edge of something that I think is going to be transformative and amazing in the coming generations. So Catherine, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This was a, a wonderful conversation. If you're down on the state of this country or on the direction of human society, I get it. But it's essential for any healthy polity to have folks who look eagerly towards the future and really invest in making it amazing. In today's world, you basically have two groups doing that. Silicon Valley is building the software and eventually hardware of the future. And traditional religious communities, statistically more than anyone else, are raising the people of the future. Right now, these two groups may not seem like natural allies, but I think we'll all be better off if we can bring them just a bit closer together. So let's do it. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you like what you heard, then the best thing you can do is give us a five-star rating on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you do, and if you review us on iTunes, hit me up on Twitter so I can let the world know how awesome you are. Okay, that's it for now. This is Ari Lamb making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. 
follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com. The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.